You are listening to Medicine Unplugged, all things medical from healthcare's leaders. This is your host, Dr. Richard Shore. This episode is our interview with Dr. William Spencer, legislator of Suffolk County and past president of the Suffolk County Medical Society and practicing pediatric otolaryngologist in Huntington and a very, very busy guy. We met Dr. Spencer at his personal trainer's office. And so the ambient noise in the recording is a little bit much, but otherwise I think it came out pretty good. Uh, But please forgive me for that. So when you uh, have big wigs such as Dr. William Spencer agree to do your podcast, uh, you go where he asked you to go. So I really truly appreciate the opportunity to interview Dr. William Spencer. Please enjoy. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate this opportunity to uh, to talk about some of the important issues that we're facing. Uh, my name is Dr. William Spencer. I am a pediatric otolaryngologist, but I'm also a Suffolk County legislator, and I represent the 18th district, which is Huntington. Great. All right. Great. All right. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to us uh, today for our podcast. So well, we already did the introduction, so why don't we start, we'll get right into it, uh, by discussing what are, in your opinion, the most pressing issues of today from a health-related perspective? Absolutely. In my opinion, I believe number one is the opioid crisis. Uh, the opioid crisis uh, is so critical because for the first time we have a generation of young people that are actually burying their peers. And this is something that is uh, unacceptable and um, it seems to be an issue of uh, lack of resources and uh, it's been very difficult to get ahead of this problem. Uh, Also, kind of tangentially related would be the issues of uh, gangs and and, and violence, um, especially uh, MS-13. I would say the third most important issue would be the increasing nicotine addiction that we're seeing. And uh, for 50 years, we dealt with the scourge of smoking, uh, the loss of productivity, the loss of life. Um, but uh, now with uh, e-products, with electronic products, um, it's another nicotine delivery system. And we're starting to see an uptick uh, and over the past year, we're really seeing a, a massive increase, especially amongst our young people. It's interesting. My kids are in school and they tell me that they have kids in their class that can't sit through an 80-minute class because of, of the need to uh, vape. And one of my daughters had a uh, today told me about a girl in her class who was vaping in class. <laughs> uh, certainly, it's uh, amazing with the devices today. Uh, some of them look like flash drives. 
Uh, we think of the vapes as being kind of the large devices that produces these large propylene glycol clouds. But now uh, with uh, these um, salt-based uh, devices, the, there's very little smoke. And so you can have a child that can literally uh, vape out of one sleeve and blow the smoke in the other right in the middle of class. Yeah, it's amazing. Are there any known health effects of vaping that are distinct from cigarette smoke? Well, that is the uh, big debate. Um, I think there's a lot that would argue that uh, vaping is safer, and I think sometimes that's just on the basis of quantity of chemicals, where in combustible cigarettes there's over 600 chemicals. In vaping, there's about 60. So you'll hear those that will say, well, vaping is 90% safer. But it's not the number of chemicals, it's the toxicity. And so a lot of these chemicals, because vaping is relatively new, we don't understand the impact of inhaling them into our lungs. And um, there are some indications that it could be as bad or even worse than combustible cigarettes. And then you have the issues where the nicotine content is quite high in these vapes, these devices, so that uh, it's pretty easy to get addicted. That's true. Um, there used to be with combustible cigarettes, if you were 12 or 13 years old and you inhaled a menthol cigarette, it was very irritating. You cough. But now with flavors like gummy bears or mango, right. you can get that nicotine. And in fact, with uh, some products such as Juul, you can have as much nicotine in uh, one Juul cartridge as you have in an, an entire pack of cigarettes. I mean, that's incredible to me. I mean, it's because, well, no wonder kids are becoming addicted. I mean, how can you com compete with that? It's a Jolt Cola times 50. And it's also about development. Um, right. I think uh, also as a medical specialist in pediatrics, the prefrontal cortex doesn't fully develop until... 25 years old. So in that developing uh, mind, uh, the addiction is so much stronger. In fact, uh, there's uh, if someone hasn't used nicotine products by the time they're 18, they're three times less likely to use them. If they haven't used them by the time they're 21, they're 10 times less likely to use them. So there's a huge difference in that young mind and the, uh, the grip of addiction. I know with cigarettes uh, in incredible bipartisan legislation many years ago, it seems almost quaint today, but they uh, stopped with the, remember, the, the Marlboro Man and the advertisements on TV and the advertisements towards kids, and yet Jules allowed to advertise on TV. Yes, that's, that's very strange, but even uh, what makes it more difficult is now through social media, where it's really hard to regulate, they literally have uh, influencers that are paid to get out there and act as if they're normal every day, either kids or teenagers, and uh, they talk intimately about their life, and they incorporate the benefits of the jeweling or the vaping. Yeah, the ads are very subtle. My they, daughter shows me the ads, and uh, they're very subtle. It's almost... And, it's a picture of something incredible that they're doing, and then someone in the corner is vaping, and I wouldn't even notice it, but kids would see that very loud and clear. Certainly, certainly. Yeah, it's very, uh, very interesting uh, 
uh, psychology behind those sorts of ads. Uh, why don't we switch gears a little bit towards another hot topic, which is marijuana. Um, I've been hearing through our through the medical society and uh, through Dr. Dowling and so on the increased risks of acute psychosis and other serious mental disorders that are associated with marijuana use in its purified, high THC, high CBD forms. Care to comment? Very hot debate. And unfortunately, sometimes in public policy, we may let the uh, economic argument drive the conversation. And today, a lot of municipalities are clamoring for resources and they hear these stories about marijuana and the cash and think that, you know, if marijuana is available and um, it's legalized recreationally, that it's going to be a cash cow. But there is a societal cost that you have to mitigate. And all you have to do is look at some of the places where uh, marijuana has uh, been legalized recreationally they're not necessarily seeing the big boom that they expected. The problem, in my opinion, is that a lot of people will come in and they will say, well, marijuana is harmless because no one's ever died from uh, acute intoxication of marijuana. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but uh, they will say that pot is not harmful. But that just isn't the case. There are long-term cognitive impact that we see. There's increased risk of psychosis. Um, I had a really great situation where I was listening to testimony, and I had a gentleman that came up, and he was in his 80s and was testifying for recreational marijuana. And he gave his testimony, and he said, I smoked marijuana for 20 years and it never caused me to do any harm, and we should make this legal. And I said to him, well, when did you stop? He said, about 20 years ago. And I asked, well, why did you stop? He said, because while I was smoking, I didn't do anything for 20 years. I had no motivation. <laughs> and, and it was sort of strange. You could just hear kind of like, aha. So. Well, that, that <laughs> sort of the motivational aspects of marijuana have been very well known. Um, and certainly we all have uh, friends in, the, in all the movies and popular culture, the potheads that don't get off the sofa. And I certainly had a friend from college who was like that. Um, but I can tell you from a urologic perspective, it is certainly not a harmless and innocuous drug. In fact, if you had to design a... Um, drug that would affect the male reproductive system in in as many places as possible, you would have to do, design marijuana. <laughs> it's incredible. It affects really every aspect of spermatogenesis, and cannabinoid receptors are located on every part of the sperm, the, the head, the acrosome, the midpiece, the tail. It's incredible. Yeah. yeah, so, and there's definitely an association. Of course, everyone says, oh, I, all my friends smoke, and they have 10 kids. Okay, that's, that's true. But there is, you know, not everyone dies of lung cancer either from smoking cigarettes, and yet we know the association with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, are there any head and neck related concerns with marijuana? Smoking, obviously, and tobacco, definitely, with oral maxillofacial cancers and so on. Is it the same with marijuana? Well, 
I think that with marijuana specifically, the concern would be more towards um, associated use of other things. Um, there's a big discussion whether or not marijuana is a, a gateway drug, and there's those that would argue a, a, against it. But um, you do see that marijuana, uh, which is part of the vaping culture, um, does usually associate itself with nicotine use and smoking and, and um, also for some people a propensity towards using other drugs. Right. Are there, what are some of the law enforcement concerns related to legalized marijuana? Well, the, one of the things you will hear is that we must end prohibition. And that's just not accurate because with alcohol there was a period where it was legal and then it was made illegal and that was prohibition, where marijuana has never been legal. Um, you know, it's hard to put the toothpaste back into the tube. But from law enforcement perspective, alcohol we know. We know that uh, if you have a blood alcohol level of 0.08, and we can define whether or not you are impaired. Um, we know the differences based on the alcohol content of you know, how many beers or how many glasses of wine versus how much hard liquor because you know we're familiar with it. Marijuana, uh, one of the problems is that um, besides uh, in the underground, um, in the federal government, it's a Schedule One substance, which means it's hard for us to study it. So we don't have any definitive tests. We don't know if we find THC, uh, if someone has just smoked it uh, an hour ago or if they smoked it a day ago. And we don't have definitive tests to kind of decide what is impaired or, or, or not. And so I do think there are some logistical issues. Uh, and I think we need to take a pause. Uh, it would be great if we could lobby the federal government to make it a Schedule two, cocaine Schedule two, so that uh, researchers can study it, so that we can have better tests and a better sense of what are appropriate levels. What's the thought process behind making that a Schedule one? Well, um, it's a Schedule One where we can't get a hold of it right now. So if I'm in the operating room doing a nasal surgery, we're able to use cocaine in a medical oh, really? fashion. Okay. Cocaine is Schedule Two, which is highly controlled. You can't just buy it, uh, but you researchers, can are, you can get medical cocaine. You're able to look at it. You're able to study it. You can't with marijuana. What do you use it for in the operating room for? Cocaine? Yeah. Uh, cocaine is a very potent uh, vasoconstrictor, so it allows you to do surgery without uh, uh, a lot of blood, and it also alleviates pain. But if used, you know, in the right amount and fashion, it's very uh, safe and appropriate. Yeah. Interesting. Let's uh, let's turn a little bit to the medical field, which we both are physicians. Uh, what are your thoughts on prior authorization requirements, the bane of all our existences? Well, I think that what we're seeing is uh, still a, a, a lot more division between uh, patients and doctors because of a third party, the payer, that uh, has now placed this kind of regulatory uh, landscape that's out there. And so um, pre-authorizations, in my opinion, can sometimes be used uh, to delay care. Uh, or to deny care. 
And um, I think that uh, in, in certain cases for procedures that might be uh, extremely expensive and, and that to require that there are some standards is, is one thing, but this whole idea of, uh, of uh, being in pre-authorizing um, everything, I believe it's sort of a, a stall tactic, and um, I think that we need to uh, have greater advocacy and, and policies that will stop the insurance companies from playing uh, uh, judge and jury. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because you often hear one of the rallying cries of the Republicans, uh, and I don't want to get partisan here, but they would say, do you want a government bureaucrat between you and your patient? And yet every day we have commercial bureaucrats between us and our patients. We don't have, we don't have government bureaucrats. I yes. mean, it never happens with Medicare. Yes. It only happens with the commercial payers. And uh, so I sort of chuckle whenever I hear that because my day is spent, I probably spend several hours Mm-hmm. 10, 15 hours a week, my staff mm-hmm. does, but I have to pay for them, to do prior authorizations. Does your society, the ENT society, practice or um, publish best practice guidelines for a variety of conditions? Absolutely. And um, I think that these best practice guidelines are done with uh, the idea of efficiency and quality and safety. And right. that's really what it should be about. And they're evidence-based. And they're evidence-based. Right. So we have them as well in urology. And so if someone comes in with grossing material, blood in the urine, I don't make it up that they need a CT urogram mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and a cystoscopy. I don't make it up. It, it, I, I didn't create the – I don't own the CAT scanner. Certainly. I'm not getting any money for doing the CAT scan, and I'm not doing anything that's outside the box. I'm doing something, in fact, to not order the CT urogram would be, in many cases, a departure. And on the other hand, we're held liable. <laughs> so it's right. got to have a, uh, yeah, a two Yes. I know. I, it's, uh, but, and the, as you say, they always say yes, ultimately, you know, but they have, but they put you through the, the ringer. Um, medical liability reform, pipe dream. Or a potential reality? Well, I think that um, as we see access to health care start to decrease in some of our communities where uh, you'll have large communities that will have a difficult time getting obstetrical care or neurosurgical care, um, I think it's just a system that, that, that can't sustain itself when we see these uh, disproportionate punitive awards. You know, I understand that you need uh, some insurance and some protections in situations where there are untoward outcomes and that patients need to have protections. But when you see um, the differences, for instance, in in malpractice rates, uh, depending on where you live, um, you know, the rates for malpractice insurance are four times higher downstate than they are upstate then it tells me that there are uh, concern where a jury in one county can award uh, $10 million and in another county award $750,000. Um, it seems to be uh, that um, it's out of control. And to have some liability reform would actually serve uh, to kind of stabilize and protect medicine and patient access. What do you think of, of CAPS? 
I think uh, I think caps are uh, a, a great idea as far as on uh, punitive uh, damages. I think there's uh, really true formulas to uh, calculate uh, just really in situations where there's just an untoward outcome, uh, perhaps by uh, someone that makes a, a human mistake, um, that uh, there should be reasonable scales to calculate uh, really what the, the loss of uh, livelihood is. There are models in other countries that do it quite well. Yes. Um, in that is not adversarial. So one issue with the adversarial system that we have is that the l people that are a little bit injured Mm -hmm. Maybe they lose, maybe they are out of work for a couple of weeks. They have some significant economic damages. They didn't get zero help. Yes. And you, you really have to be severely disabled or worse to get any relief in this country. So even as a patient advocate, Certainly. this doesn't work. No, no. But it works for... Um the attorneys, <laughs> and well, that's a, that's right. a, and that's unfortunate. Right. Where sometimes you see, uh, by the time the fees are paid, uh, that really the patient a lot of times doesn't wind up with a lot on the bottom line, uh, right. and the you yeah. know the attorneys are yeah. Because I suspect if a if a patient gets a you know a settlement of fifty or a hundred thousand dollars they're really not walking away by the time they're all done with all that much they're they're not they're not and, and certainly not life saving everyone everybody thinks that it's a lottery system and I've known a lot of plaintiff attorneys over the years um, family wise and professional wise and they'll tell you it's not a lottery either yeah uh, many yeah. of them many of them are not happy with the system. But for different reasons. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. So, so well, that's. Um, I'm going to ask you one last question. What's what's call like for an ENT? Well, I think that um, is uh, one of the things that we have to change how we think about uh, medicine in our specialty. Where um, I can remember, I was thinking that the new guys, they uh, need to be tougher, they need to be willing to, to take more call and to work harder. Um, as I've uh, looked at my advice that I recommend to patients, that you drink enough water, that you sleep regular hours, there, I believe that uh, call is something that we need to kind of rethink. And they've done it in other specialties, uh, whether or not you look at the emergency room or even hospitalists. But uh, I really advocate more towards uh, uh, that there needs to be defined shifts. And uh, this idea of there are times where I will see 40 or 50 patients in my office and I'm one of the only otolaryngologists around, and I will get called throughout the evening. I'll get called at 3 in the morning. And then the following day, have to do 10 surgeries. And I think that uh, we need to do better. Well, sleep is not optional it's for humans. It's not optional. It, no, then, for primates, lower primates, most mammals require certainly. sleep. And I, and I can, you know, call itself is... Maybe I don't mind quite so much, but I always, with the caveat, as long as I get my sleep. Yes, yes. So if I could take call until 
11 o'clock at night yes. and then pick up again at 5 o'clock in the morning just so, so I know I have a guaranteed yes. six, seven hours. That And in my, in my specialty, nothing bad is going to happen in the six hours, most likely. Except the testicular imagine. torsion, right? That's right. That's always the one thing. The stone with fever or the torsion. You're right. We can always think about the one thing. Right? But and you're uh, right. Same thing with otolaryngology. There's right. the epistaxis. Um, but other than that, you know, bleeding is probably the only thing. Even an abscess will wait till the morning. And maybe you can train, uh, I'm sure you can train an, um, an emergency medicine physician to temporize an epistaxis case. Yes, absolutely. Right. Right. Especially Torsion, nothing you can do, but you'd have to be very unlucky to come to arrive in the ER precisely at 11 o'clock when I go off shift uh, and have to wait the full five, six hours for me to come back on shift. But anyway, <laughs> it's not going to happen any time soon, the relief. Uh, I'm on call today. Well, we, Are you on call today? I'm on call today, right. yes. And, but I do think we have to, especially as we get into leadership positions, we have to demand change because if we go along, and I noticed we had a robust call group, but the newer physicians, they are saying uh, no, and well, you can't have privileges, and they're saying fine, you know, and, and so now we have to rethink how we're, 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 we are approaching call, and, and, and there are other ways to do it, you know. But what are the, you know, well, what are the patients to do? Uh, um, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I go to upstate facilities where I they don't have urologists there for weeks on end. Yes, exactly. But I don't think anyone really think dies as a result. And life goes on. Life goes on. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, this was a terrific experience. I Thank hope you, you enjoyed it. It's truly an honor. I enjoyed our conversation, and I hope we can talk again soon. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. This is Dr. Richard Shore, your host. This podcast is produced by Dr. Shore, that's me, in association with the Suffolk County Medical Society and the Medical Society State of New York. Unless otherwise stated, the opinions here are those of the speakers themselves and not the opinions of the Suffolk County Medical Society or the Medical Society State of New York.